it makes me upset and it sickens me to see that they were withholding these critical pieces of evidence. And I, I don't know how the exact wording, but for Jamie's jury, had they had this evidence that was withheld from them and it was withheld from us also, there were differences, you know, there were different people testifying in their trial. I think that if they knew that, they would be sickened also. It's a travesty. It really is. They consciously withheld evidence. Snow Files, Season 2, Episode 34, Andy the Juror. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. This week we're going to be concentrating on some of the jury issues and talking a little bit about a lot of these missing documents that we're, we're beginning to hear more about. And we're going to get a pretty uh, unique perspective from one of my co-defendants, jurors. I think it's pretty interesting to hear some of the things that he has to say. I mean, it's definitely a, an eye-opener when you consider uh, the differences in representation between what Susan had and what I had. Clearly, it made all the difference in the world. I think Andy will be able to give you guys a, a more intimate look in, into what they were considering, what they were thinking about, how they viewed the evidence. I've never held my jury uh, uh, accountable. You know, I've never blamed them for the verdict that they returned. I mean, not only was my attorneys incompetent in bringing out a lot of the evidence they clearly needed to know, but now we know the state was withholding so much evidence from these people. You know, if I was a jury member and I found out years later that the prosecutors had withheld so much evidence from me. I think I'd be a little pissed off about that, you know? I mean, you, you're you asked to make a decision on someone's, in this case, someone's life, and it affects not only their life, but the lives of their family and and their kids and whatnot, you know? And, and you would expect, I, I would think as a jury member, you would expect the prosecutors to be on the up and up and to be honest and open and for it to be a fair a fair hearing and to find out, you know, all these years later that it wasn't, I'd be a little pissed off if it was me, you know, and, and I hope that some of my jurors I'm hoping are paying attention and listening and we're really hoping that maybe we can get some some feedback from them. I mean if you if you stand by your verdict and you believe that you rendered the right one, then come on and tell us about that. Why you believe that. And if you don't, if you feel like you were taken advantage of and deceived by the prosecution, then we'd, we'd love to hear that, too. I mean, we just want the truth. And I think that Andy, our friend Andy, you know, uh, he's going to give us a really good perspective from a different point of view. And I'm, I'm really interested in seeing what he has to say. I hope you guys find it as interesting as I do. Thank you for using security. <laughs> good job. Goodbye. <laughs> 
Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snow Files Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snow Files wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snow Files podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the join our Patreon button. As we lead up to the Discovery hearing on September 8th, we've taken a short pause in the forensics episodes, and we promise Ballistics Part 2 is coming. But right now, we are focusing on the issues surrounding missing information and the effect that the missing information can have on a jury's verdict. Meet Andy, a jury member from Susan Claycomb's trial. Recall, Susan is Jamie's co-defendant and was found not guilty in her trial, which was held first. Andy had a candid conversation with Tam and Ray about the deliberations, the issues the jury focused on in Susan's trial, and revealing questions asked of the jurors by Assistant State's Attorney Tina Griffith and State's Attorney Charles Renard after their verdict. Information matters. Information Jamie's jury never heard matters, and 8,000 case documents never turned over to Jamie or Susan prior to trial nor Jamie when he went pro se and was granted discovery in 2007, matters. We have long known that evidence presented in Susan's trial was not presented in Jamie's trial. After this illuminating interview with Andy, we know why. Today we are joined by Andy, who was a juror on Susan Claycomb's trial. And I know we're talking about the motion a lot, so we we really wanted to look at this issue through the eyes of a juror that has actually heard the evidence in the trial. And we wanted to see the effect that the withholding of these documents, we have the upcoming motion, would have on a juror in one of the trials. So we need to make it clear that the discovery was the same in both trials. So each attorney supposedly had access to all of the discovery. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Tam. We really appreciate you being here. You listened to the podcast and are familiar with the information that was withheld in Jamie's trial. Let me start with asking you how you found us. Well, I uh, first started listening to the Bob Ruff podcast, and this was uh, a couple, almost two years ago now, or at least a year ago. And, uh, you know, we listened, and there was a group of us. I think I started in the middle of it uh, and sort of backtrack on it, and it, it went through the case. Not as thoroughly as uh, Snowfiles is doing, but uh, it kind of jarred a lot of older memories about being a juror on that trial and, and what some of the facts were and who the witnesses were kind of helped me sort of play it out, straighten it out in my mind of what had happened. It was a very long time ago, and so it's hard to remember specifics. Now, I, I'm kind of up to speed a little bit more. But how I found the snow files was through Jamie. <laughs> Jamie is the one that told me about the snow files in a letter. You didn't know Jamie before or anything, right? You're, you're from Bloomington. You just 
at the same age, you said, but you didn't, you weren't familiar with them whenever in 1991 or during the trial or anything, right? No, no, I was not familiar with them back then. I guess they wouldn't have let you on the tra- on the jury if you were, so. So you listened to Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, season seven, with the Jamie Snow case, and then you reached out to Jamie? Yes, it was about a year later. I was just exercising one day, and I, at the time of the Truth and Justice podcast, I had thought about writing him, and I actually wrote a letter, a short letter, and I never sent it. But just out of the blue, I said, I'm going to I'm going to write him. And one of the first things that he had told me is that you guys had a, a podcast and said, hey, listen to my podcast. And so I started checking it out. I think I came in probably halfway through the first season, maybe even a little bit farther along. And it was really there that in the in the snow files that I learned about the evidence that was withheld. What compelled you to reach out to to Jamie? I think it may have been guilt. The month of his trial, I had just bought a house and I, you know, I just completely forgot about it. I, uh, it was a handyman's dream. It took me about five years to finish this house. Uh, I put an addition on it. And so it just kind of, I, I just was working on other things and I didn't follow uh, the trial. And I can't even tell you when I heard about. Uh, the verdict. I'm sure it was years later. And so when I discovered Truth and Justice podcasts, I just, I was like, I got to do something, you know? And it took me a while, but I, uh, I did finally reach out to Jamie and, and I sent that letter. We really appreciate you coming forward just because we can ask you some questions, but I, I don't understand where the guilt comes from. There's no reason for you to feel guilty uh, about anything. You were a a juror on Susan Claycomb's trial. There's nothing for you to feel guilty about. It, it's important right now that you're talking to us for sure, but certainly you don't need to feel any sort of guilt. You didn't do anything the state did at all. <laughs> no, that's, yeah. You know what I mean? I, I agree. I agree. But uh, I think particularly in this last year when I, I thought about I should do something and I wasn't doing it. But, you know, I, I was busy myself. But, uh, but I, yeah, you're right in a, in a sense. It, but it's just kind of a, a certain kind of guilt. It, it did sort of motivate me. Do you recall if any of the evidence that you've reviewed was withheld in Susan's trial? Or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, no, it's all uh, a new uh, revelation for the most part. They withheld it in both trials uh, from the defense. How and I from you. Yeah, well, and from I mean, the, from the jurors. jury. Yeah, well, and from Jamie's lawyers. Right. Do you recall any of the same witnesses testifying in Susan's trial and Jamie's from from what you've learned now? Is there anyone that sticks out in your mind? Yes, there are a couple. Um, Mark Foster, the investigator who spoke with Danny Martinez, did not testify in Jamie's trial, and he did testify at Susan's trial. I think there are several ways how Danny's testimony is not credible. 
and that was just one of them. So he testified in Susan's trial and kind of helped Skelton impeach Danny's testimony somewhat. Um, you know, there were some other issues with Martinez and why he was not credible, you know, the, the nine years later. Part of that with held evidence that you're talking about was he made that positive ID four weeks before the trials. And that is just, we did not know that. Uh, we did know that it, he had taken a, a long time to do it, but we didn't know he did it in the prosecutor's office. Oh, I really? Think. So that wasn't brought out in Susan's trial? Absolutely not. So that just seems hmm. very incredible to me. And, you know, of course, how many times Martinez had been meeting with prosecutors and the detectives in that previous year and said nothing to them until right before the trial. The other, you know, Mark Foster was one. The other was, I think, probably the composite officer. I forget his name. That was Sanders. Sanders. That was Sanders. And so he testified at Susan's trial, and he testified that Juan Lunas and Carlos could not provide enough information to even do a composite. And uh, the distances were, they were great. You know, it was a couple hundred feet. You know, if they can't even do a composite. Now, Carlos did positively identify Jamie in, in the lineup, but, you know, now we know he closed his eyes and he just imagined the perpetrator and in a sense he guessed. So in Susan's trial, when Carlos Luna testified, he just said 100% that that was who he saw? I don't recall his exact testimony. He did the video deposition and he said that he saw that, but then did Skelton come back and was like, well, here's what he said when he actually saw the lineup. And there's a reason that you didn't believe Carlos's ID. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Do you remember what that was? I know it well, was a long time ago. It, well, I re- what I recall is that that one the main fact was that he couldn't uh, uh, provide information for a composite, and so if he can't describe what the person looks like, Skelton may have brought up some wording that Lunas used as far as how he identified him. I don't recall that exactly. I do know that he said since then that he just closed his eyes and imagined. Skelton may have brought that out at the trial. I'm not I'm not 100% sure on that. The other part of that is that withheld memo, which essentially impeaches Lunas any ID from that window. It was so far away, the officer writes in a memo that he knew people in that parking lot and he couldn't identify them. And the prosecution knew that. They had that memo. And so they knew that Luna's ID was not credible. And they withheld that from you. <laughs> yeah, they withheld it now, from everybody. I mean, you know, that's right. Right. It, it wasn't, I guess, um, I, you know, you guys have done some FOIA requests and that's how it was found. I mean, it was after the conviction, after his appeals were denied. That was one of those things, you know, that, that slipped through the cracks. Remember when we found that, Ray? I, it might have been in one of mine. I, I seem to remember sending it. Or no, I think it was one in one of Ray's. And then I was going through it and I was like, holy shit, Ray, did you see this? 
<laughs> like, what is this? I think it was a mistake letting that go through on your part. But if, had they had they really known it, I think that one would have been shredded. Kind of like the second half of that memo that we don't have, and they deny exists. Yeah, even though there's no period at the end, it just kind of trails off. It just yeah, trails off and stops. <laughs> well, that's that's pretty damning evidence that um, his constitutional rights were violated. Both of theirs, Susan and Jamie's. It's evidence uh, that tends to show that he was one of the main witnesses. The only positive ID against him was uh, incredible. It was not credible. Let's talk a little bit about Martinez. Did the jury have the sense that he was a, I mean, we know in, in both the trials, there was never an eyewitness because nobody saw the crime occur. What kind of feel did you get from Danny Martinez as he was testifying? What, what was that like? Well, I think we were kind of baffled because we did hear that there were two officers there at exactly the same time. And one of them was describing his motions. So, I mean, there was no doubt about it. The three of them were there at the same time. And for the two officers to have missed a guy coming out of the gas station, it's just, it couldn't have happened. I don't believe that could have happened. And it, it did go to impeach his testimony. And that was a big part of our deliberations. Most of the other in fact, all but the eyewitnesses were hearsay. You know, there was no physical evidence. So it came down to those eyewitnesses. And so most of us, I think, right away, sort of, especially with the 85, when he said he was only 85% sure, I mean, that, I mean, that was it, you know. Uh, there was really nothing. And for Susan, there was nothing more. There were a few other witnesses, and they were hearsay. Uh, there were no eyewitnesses for her. So what about the jailhouse informants? What was your perception of those? Did the jury just dismiss them? Well, I think possibly the difference in the two trials, Susan's trial and Jamie's trial, was that, you know, all along the way, I feel that Skelton did a pretty good job of pointing out the inconsistencies in what they were saying. And so it didn't have quite an additive effect that I think it may have had in Jamie's trial. I don't, I don't believe that Riley and Pixel were effective in impeaching these witnesses as they were rolling along. You know, there were so many of them. And so I think in our case, maybe, you know, as each witness came along, it's not that we were less and less likely to believe them, but it just did not add up. And so when we did break for deliberations, you know, it, it was at the point where we were like, is that it? You know, is that it? I think we kept waiting for some direct physical evidence. And it, it just became this sort of faulty eyewitness testimony and hearsay. And that I just think that it, it didn't add up for us. I guess I just wonder about the, the parade of witnesses. You know, if you had... Roland Hammond, Palumbo, Moffitt, okay, and they all said that Jamie confessed because we always get blowback about, well, if that many people said he did it and he's just trying to say he didn't in higher courts, they're 
always saying, oh, well, Jamie was running around the IDOC doing a year and a half on a obstruction of justice charge and confessing to everybody that he had, you know, that he had done a murder. And I love the fact that y'all actually saw that for what it was. I'm not saying anything about Jamie's jury. They just weren't presented with all of the evidence. I'm just very interested in the fact that from your portrayal of the jury, y'all actually just gave it some thought. Did anyone in the jury ever go, well, why would all of these people say that he confessed to him? Was that part of the deliberations or? You know, uh, we went through each witness and I think it was determined pretty early that these they were all hearsay witnesses. And so um, it really came down to Martinez and Luna. And, you know, in Susan's trial, Martinez said he was only 85% sure. And in Jamie's trial, he said he was 100% sure. Now, if he had said that in our trial, I think that would have had a big difference. I, I don't know that for sure. I know that's part of the reason we discredited him because we talked about that. I'm I'm sure of that. I think Jamie's jurors heard something different and I, you know, I can't speculate how they felt about the hearsay witnesses and if they had discredited them all also. And it came down to Martinez and or Luna. Is there anything during the discussions, the deliberations that sticks out in your mind? This was quite a long time ago. What I remember is that we had broke with the final statements, closing statements earlier in the day. And we sort of deliberated a little bit a first day. That's just my recollection of it. And then we had a full second day. I think towards the end of that second day, there were still one or two that were not convinced of what they were going to say or how they were going to answer. You know, we did a couple votes near the end of that day. And uh, I think one of the jurors, and I would like to see maybe this in discovery, uh, if there was a question asked of our jury, because what I remember is we asked the meaning of beyond a reasonable doubt. And I believe it was for one of our co-jurors. And I think they were struggling with the Martinez testimony. I think at the end of it, of, of that day, you know, we had a, a very good foreman. And I, I think that he helped and let everyone share w- what they were thinking. And I, I think it was very open. And at the end of that day, uh, we were unanimous. But I think we decided we were going to sleep on it because I don't, I don't feel like anybody was pressured or anything like that. And I don't think that anyone felt that way. But I think we all just sort of said, well, let's just wait. And so we met early the next morning and we just had an initial vote and uh, we were unanimous and not guilty. When she was found not guilty, there's a picture of Tammy Snow and Susan that hit the pantograph. And Susan was just crying and you could see Tammy's hair because she's got this like long blonde wavy hair and they were hugging and uh Jamie said that he could see from the 
courthouse, all of that activity when that happened. I just think that's, I don't know, that gets me. It was an amazing thing that y'all did because it you actually looked at the evidence and was able to flush out what the strong points were. It's interesting to me that you thought that uh, Danny Martinez, he was the he was the one because, in, again, in higher courts, they always say, well, no, he wasn't a big witness because they changed their theory as they go along. Did the jury have any idea that Susan uh, was pregnant when she was arrested and that she had a child while she was in jail? Were y'all aware of any of that stuff? I don't believe so. No, no. So there was never any heated arguments or anything. Y'all just had a good, calm discussion and votes. Absolutely. We had a really good foreman and we kind of methodically went through every witness. We all took very good notes. And I think there were so many witnesses and there was a lot of information, but I think we had a good idea of what we were deliberating. So yeah, I, I think it was a very smooth process. And I, I believe that everyone was able to speak their mind and make their own decision. Were you aware of any of the media reports or you just, they said, don't read them and you didn't? Yes, they said, don't read them. Uh, we were not sequestered. <laughs> Is that a bad question? <laughs> well, we weren't, uh, we weren't sequestered per se in the evenings. We were uh, during the lunch hours. But yeah, every night the judge would tell us to not read anything and don't discuss it. Because there was so much going on during her trial. Deep Skelton got it out in the media that uh, Susan had passed a polygraph. Bridget Logston and Julie Knight were buddies, right? Besties. And I know that they had a falling out and Bridget had said something in the papers about Julie was lying and she was just trying to get her kids back. So there was a lot of rumor mill going on in the panograph during her trial. Everybody was just good jurors and didn't pay attention to any of that, huh? No, we had no discussion about that. I don't, I don't recall that. So uh, yeah, I think we were pretty good about it. How was the jury feeling when they walked away? I think solemn would be the, the right word, maybe exhausted. But I think I can't speak for others, but felt a sense of pride that we did go through the evidence. And we did look at it and we decided what was hearsay and what was real evidence or not real evidence. So I think there was a certain pride that I had. That must have been hard to sit in the courtroom. You're seeing Susan's family, but you're also seeing Bill Little's mom and sisters. I can see why you say it was solemn because that was not an easy thing to do. Yes. Yes. Um, That was hard. It's unfortunate that they have not received justice yet in this case. So let's go on to Ray's question. Ray, you want to jump in here? And I was uh, curious, like from uh, the Truth and Justice, where it came out that there was an interview of the jurors afterwards by, I'm not sure if it was both Renard and, and Griffin both on it. 
But I'm curious about that. that. Yes, they were both. They brought you in, Andy. Yes. Well, I think it was either in a letter uh, that was sent to us. There were times, and I think we maybe made a call to sign up for a time to go. They requested we meet with them, and so I was thinking going in there. Uh, maybe it was a thank you for your service kind of thing. I'm not, I wasn't really sure, but there were several others that apparently had picked the same time. And so uh, I can't say exactly how many of us there were, but there were several of us. And what I remember is they were kind of mystified how we could have come up with our verdict. And I think we started to go through, you know, the witnesses. And I think they were really trying to find out what worked and what didn't work for us. My curiosity all along was how they constructed their their case against Jamie. I mean, I I looked and they they manipulated an awful lot of the witnesses and they, they went a certain direction. Like you said before, there's no physical evidence. Some of the friends, Susan's friends, they testified, but they didn't. They didn't have her making any confessions, anything like that. And so that's, I, I try to rebuild it to know what direction on his different, any post-conviction appeal, what we can look at. The jailhouse informants are, are fairly easy. We've talked to them and most of them now have recanted, recanted big time. So that was my curiosity of why I wanted to hear what they said. They, they, did they push you a lot on why you didn't find her guilty? From what I remember, Ray, it, it was a discussion. It wasn't, I wouldn't say push, but I think it was definitely a question and answer. And I think the one thing that came out of it, and I know for sure that the Danny Martinez 85% came up. And uh, I, I'm not, you know, I can't remember how it came up, but I know that that was discussed. I know that it was a big part of our deliberations. and. I think that's probably what other jurors, maybe that had met with them, had to talk to them about as well. And that's why they had to get him to change his testimony. I understand their purpose. They want a winner. And that's why they basically brought the jurors in to see where they went wrong. And just trying to analyze like through, through the trial list and see who testified in Susan's trial who didn't testify in Susan's and who tested, who they brought in for Jamie's and, and such like that. That's the information that kind of comes out in documents and stuff too. I'm trying to piece together the state's, the state's case, why they did certain things. So I appreciate you saying that what they talked about. That's good information. So I have a question about that as well. You were in a group? Yes. And how many? I can't say for sure. Uh, I think it's probably, I want to say three to five. I don't think there were more than that. I know there wasn't less than that. Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, four maybe. Okay. And do you know if they interviewed other jurors? I know for sure that they interviewed another juror because she, she was on the Truth and Justice podcast. I had listened to that. Yeah, she was interviewed alone. I, th I think they gave us several times to choose from, and maybe that time just had her. So you said, okay, the one factor was the 
I'm 85% sure with Danny Martinez. Do you recall any of the other comments that any of the other jurors made or what the other top factors were as far as, you know, during that interview, letting them know this is why she was acquitted? I know they were puzzled. I'm sure y'all were trying to explain or answer their questions, I guess. Yeah, we were trying to answer their questions and we did go through, I I can't say if it was all the witnesses. We did go through many of the witnesses and we explained why we thought they were hearsay and they were hearsay. And I uh, I think they were hoping that it did add up. But in those discussions, it was mainly about Martinez and some hearsay witnesses. So I can't, I can't tell you exactly what was said. I, it would just been so long. I know. I know. And I'm not trying to pressure you. I would assume, and I hate to make assumptions, <laughs> but it was about Luna and the distance and Martinez, because what you said earlier that y'all had pretty much dismissed the, he told me this witnesses or, or, and I know there were witnesses against Susan, for example, Julie Knight, who was saying, she told me all the time that they, that they did this crime. She said it over and over and over like a hundred times, or I can't even remember how exactly what she said, but If I recall correctly, that was her testimony. So they had, they had other people. I know that they had her niece on there who couldn't exactly remember what happened Easter Sunday, 1991, but she thought maybe uh, Susan used a car and went somewhere or something and she was devastated. You know, she couldn't recall And I think that was one of those witnesses, a family member that they propped up against her. And I recall that being very difficult for her, for that family member. Yeah. I remember that was probably Skelton's gotcha moment. They had built up that she had confessed. And then, you know, Skelton got it to the point where he just said, so did she say this? And and she said, no, she said, no. So that was near the end. And from what I remember, it was 90% about Jamie. And they had a few hearsay witnesses at the end for Susan. She pawned a coat, just a couple of witnesses that said she had confessed. And y'all, y'all just weren't buying it. Well, there's no evidence. So you mentioned Sanders' testimony as far as the Luna boys not being able, or Carlos Luna not being able to make a composite, even though you had heard his deposition, he wasn't able to make a composite. And in Jamie's trial, I think it was the only question that we know of that was sent to the jury is what does 214 feet look like? And the judge just sent it back and said, you know, basically, you're going to have to figure it out. Yeah, I saw that. So in your jury room, that was one of the issues. So when you were talking about that distance, did people just know or did they speculate or did they say there's just no way you're going to be able to see somebody for a couple of seconds 
that far away and be able to ID them. I And I also remember when Skelton was cross-examining witnesses, he actually, because Danny Martinez said he had on a short light coat, right? And then the Luna boys said he had on one of those leather jackets to his ankles. And then Gutierrez said that he had on a biker leather jacket. And I seem to recall reading (laughs) Skelton putting jackets on in front of Martinez. And he was saying, is this, is this a waist high jacket? He even put a hat on and was talking about the light coming behind him, right? Because that's where it would be coming behind him, how he could see his eyes. He was talking about the height of the person that he said he, he saw that he was 5'11 or 6'1 or, you know, I know we were eye to eye. And he said, well, you're not that height. I think Danny Martinez said, I'm not, you know, that's just what I say. And, and Skelton said, but we're not talking about you. We're talking about the person that you said you saw. Pitzel just seemed more like he was being flippant and sarcastic. And Skelton just seemed to come across to me as knowledgeable. And he was polite, nice to the witnesses that he was talking to, but he was also poignant. And immediately he would clap back at Danny Martinez. I recall one time Danny Martinez even going, can I get some water? (laughs) Because just it was getting intense and you could feel that buildup. Yeah. From reading the trial transcripts, was that the feel that was in the courtroom? I believe that was. That's true. That's probably a true statement. Luna didn't see Martinez in that parking lot and said so. Pilo said he didn't see somebody come out. William said he didn't see somebody. So they're all there in this parking lot looking essentially at the front door, and only one of them came face to face. I I don't know if we even know that when Luna looked out the window, if it was the same time. It wasn't the same time because he didn't see Martinez. So, you know, they're not looking at the same guy. I don't know. I think the Martinez testimony is false. You know, I don't, I don't believe it. In Jamie's trial, they asked the question, well, you were looking at your radio. I mean, who looks at their radio on a, on their shoulder? Can you look? I I guess you can. But the point of having a radio on your shoulder is to be able to, to keep your field of view, right? So he was distracted. He he was looking everywhere. He just maybe just missed it. It was just a couple of seconds. And I've I've never bought that. And I before I ever even talked to Jamie about that, I got that from the transcripts. And I was like, how that that convinced me. I'm like, that's wrong. That's 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 not right. There's just no way that that could happen and I'm I'm glad that, that y'all saw that and it's interesting that this whole uh, Susan's trial was 90% about convicting Jamie because you had to prove that Jamie 
was uh, the person to prove that Susan was driving the getaway yes. car. There was another police officer looking at that front door at the same time. We know that. Right. Paul Williams was there. Yeah, we knew, and we then, knew that. Uh, so y'all knew that and y'all were paying attention to that. And if you ever go to the location, you can stand across that street and it, it's your entire field of view. Nobody's coming out and you just miss it because you're arguing for a couple of seconds with someone on dispatch. You yeah. know, hold this plate, hold this plate, hold well, this plate. Well, and there was another officer right there. I mean, I just can't. There are two officers right. looking at him. So that was the big sticking point, and Danny Martinez was. Yeah, I mean that was your. It's a big part of it, you know, and then throw in the eighty-five percent that I, you know, I, there's just no way. I mean, there was doubt. So, in light of that, even if it was a hundred percent. Wouldn't that have been difficult for you to convict Susan in light of the locations of both of the officers? And I'm not sure. I understand your point. But if you have an eyewitness who says he's 100% sure, then that may carry some weight with someone. I think there were other ways to impeach the various parts of his testimony, but... That's the clincher. I mean, if you're only 85% sure. But yes, there were questions about that. You know, we we talked about that. How can all these, if you just look at Martinez and the two officers, how can these three guys be there? And the one guy who was face to face with them, the one witness they've got, neither of the officers saw. That just seemed incredible. So does that fully impeach his testimony? I would tend to say yes for me. And it was that coupled with the fact that he came up nine years later and that had ID'd a big him part when of it he, too. yes, that if had a he big couldn't part even ID him in the in-person lineup a month or two right after the crime. Yeah. He sees his picture in the paper. Yeah. That's incredible. Bizarre. And told Foster that it wasn't, that's not the people I ID'd. And then, since he's gone with the state, he says, talk to the state's attorney. Nobody could talk to him. He won't talk to anybody. He said that. Foster testified to that, that that was not the person that he saw. Nobody can figure out Danny Martinez and why he did or said what he did and said. Ray, do you have any other questions? No other questions. I think some of the stuff that Andy has said, some of the things we have found in the foyers that we anticipate coming up in Jamie's discovery, kind of, I mean, one of them about this Sanders and Martinez's descriptions and stuff like that. Some of the stuff that we have in FOIA will be good to knock Martinez even further. Some of the information we have in FOIA's about the, the memo, that seems like that would have knocked some of the identification further. I think getting the documents in discovery is going to be uh, a big step and, and very, uh, a very good one for any other post-conviction appeals coming up. 
So, Andy, I thank you for the information. It was good. Thank you, Ray. My last question for you is that we know the discovery was the same in both Susan and Jamie's trials. How does all this make you feel? You said in the beginning that you felt a sense of guilt, but knowing that they withheld this information from not only Jamie, but two juries, what is your view on the McLean County justice system? Do you think that this was a fluke or do you think it's the, or do you have any idea? What is your opinion? I can't imagine, Andy, if y'all had convicted Susan based on the evidence presented to you and coming up later and finding out that there was all of this other information, how, how that would have made you feel. Do you have any thoughts on that just in general about the justice system? Do you have a different view or the same or has it been strengthened? It makes me upset and it sickens me to see that they were withholding these critical pieces of evidence. And I, I don't know how the exact wording, but for Jamie's jury, had they had this evidence that was withheld from them, and it was withheld from us also. There were differences, you know, there were different people testifying in their trial. I think that if they knew that, they would be sickened also. It's a travesty. It really is. They consciously withheld evidence. The people that they were putting on the stand uh, were not credible, and they knew that. Two of the witnesses failed polygraphs, and they didn't reveal that. There were several other witnesses they knew were lying that your FOIAs have brought out. So this was a conscious effort by the prosecution. It feels like it was bolstered as well because, boy, did they learn a lot from Susan's trial. One thing was to make sure that Sanders wasn't in there so he couldn't testify that the Luna, Carlos Luna, was not even able to make a composite either one of the boys, and that Danny Martinez said he was 85% sure. But now he's 100% sure. Those were a couple of things, and and Foster as well, being able to say, I talked to Danny Martinez, and he tried to say, you know, this is off the record, but initially he told Foster that, it wasn't the people that he saw. And then when Foster came back, he was like, well, I have to tell you off the record. I went to the state's attorney's office today and I ID Jamie Snow. They say they have a lot of evidence against him. And that was <laughs> terrible. These are the people because they said they have a lot of evidence against them. And, uh, that his jury wasn't able to hear those things. Those seem like some of the top factors that y'all identified, that it was about Luna and the distance and the inability to make a composite. And it was about Danny Martinez saying that he was 85% sure 
and Foster's testimony as well factored into that and bolstered that argument. And it's a cry and shame is the only <laughs> phrase I can think of it. It's a cry and shame. That's that, corruption. Uh, it's official yeah. corruption. It is. And uh, I, it seems to me like you're incensed, and you should be, because as you know now, there's a lot of stuff that you didn't hear with Palumbo. You heard his interview now, yeah. right? That wasn't brought out before. And all of the other stuff that we've dug up in FOIA. Yeah. And, sure. you know, that's the important part, right? Because y'all found Susan not guilty, thankfully, by sitting there doing the deliberations like they should be done, looking at the facts and evidence and determining the credibility of the witnesses. Yeah. And as Jamie always says, this case, because there's no physical evidence that has been tested, this case is based on the credibility of the witnesses. One more thing I want to say about Jamie's jury. They didn't have Steve Skelton. They had Frank Pixel. So what Skelton was able to bring out of these witnesses made a big difference for that jury. I believe that. And I said before that these witnesses didn't add up. They weren't bolstering each other. But I don't think Riley and Pixel were able to do that like Skelton did. So I think Jamie's jury didn't have that benefit, which Susan had. I think that was a big part of it. I know the eyewitnesses back and forth and the 100% and the 85%, but I think it's just bad lawyering. We also have to acknowledge that the entire public defender's office was recused because the director or the head of the public defender's office had defended at Palumbo 10 years prior on another matter. And she fought to be able to defend Jamie, but they got her out. And who do they replace her with? Someone who has recently had a stroke. Everybody would know in the legal small community, the troubles that Pitzel was having. I think they set everything up for successful, to them, guilty verdict and a life without parole sentence as well. Yeah, which uh, Jamie's jury wasn't involved in. Usually uh, the jury is a part of that sentencing. At least they know what they're judging what he's indicted for and what the punishment is. They kind of went around that uh, usual process. That's the judge and the prosecutor. Exactly. Well, I mean, I know I can speak on behalf of Leslie and Bruce, who were unable to join us in this interview, that we really, really appreciate you coming forward and we appreciate your insight. Thank you, as Ray did. And I know. Jamie appreciates you as well. And it's okay to come forward. It's okay to say, wait a minute, maybe that was wrong. 
And we would love to have more jurors come forward. We would love to have the jurors that participated in Jamie's trial to come forward. We don't have, we don't have anything negative to say. We know they didn't present you with all of the evidence and it's okay to change your mind based on new information. And it's sad that they withheld all of this from two juries and Jamie and Jamie's defense team and Jamie in 2007. So hopefully we're going to get some good information. I will be so sad if the judge says that it doesn't matter, these documents. It is sad, uh, Tam. I just want to say to the little family, my prayers are with you and for you. And it's just a horrible tragedy all around. I just believe in this case, you know, there was a miscarriage of justice. And in fact, the real perpetrator has not been identified. But I just want them to know that Bill means a lot to everyone and his life did. In this episode, we explored how Jamie's co-defendant, Susan Claycomb, was found not guilty despite the parade of hearsay witnesses. Susan's jury just didn't find them credible and dismissed them early on. Jared Andy explained the primary evidence they explored were the so-called eyewitnesses. They just couldn't get past the fact that Danny Martinez testified that he was 85% sure that there were two police officers across the street watching the gas station when the suspect allegedly ran into Martinez, and that Susan's investigator, Foster, testified that Martinez told him, off the record, the person they arrested was not the person he saw that night. But soon after that, he told Foster that he identified Jamie Snow because he, quote, understood the state had a lot of evidence against them, so they must have committed the crime. The jury also couldn't get past the fact that police composite artist Sanders testified that neither of the Luna boys could not give enough of a description to create a composite. They also concluded the distance was way too far for Carlos Luna to be able to make a positive ID. After the verdict, state's attorneys Tina Griffin and Charles Renard questioned the jury about their verdict, and the jurors told them these were primary issues deliberated and they had reasonable doubt. Lo and behold, in Jamie's trial, Martinez said he was now 100% sure the person he saw was Jamie, and neither Sanders nor Foster was called to testify. Now we know this test run worked up brilliantly for the state and was devastating for Jamie. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Missing critical information, such as critical witness testimony or critical documents, makes a difference in the verdict, as is evident in the state's strategy in Jamie's trial. That's why if you're in the Illinois area, please join us on September 8th at 1.30 p.m. Central Time at the McLean County Law and Justice Center where Jamie's attorneys from the Exoneration Project will argue the state should turn over almost 8,000 case documents that were denied to Jamie and Susan prior to their trial. By now you've read the motion submitted to the court by the Exoneration Project or have listened to Snow Files episode 33 
where we discussed the motion at length. Now it's time for the state to respond. How will they argue against turning over the documents? What could they possibly say to justify hiding evidence? That's next time on Snow Files.